We begin our sermon this morning with prayer. We pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Please bless us as we study and meditate upon your word this morning. Send your Holy Spirit to us. Uh, build our faith. Build our trust in you. And equip us to live lives that reflect that trust and faith to the people around us. Bless our sermon time this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What is uh, the best sermon that you have ever heard? It's probably an unfair question. I can't even... So I can't literally even remember the sermon that I preached last week, let alone what would be the best sermon I've ever heard. So let me rephrase it. Um, what makes for a really good sermon? What would be some ingredients of like a great sermon, in your opinion? You can shout them out. Good. That's one you're thinking of from in town? Um, in general, good. In general, what are some like characteristics of a really good sermon? A really good sermon should have what? Relatability. I hear that one a lot. Um, it should apply to my life. What else should a good sermon have? What's that? Implications, yeah. Probably being biblically accurate and based on God's word would be good. Otherwise, it would just be like a pastor telling you whatever he thinks, and maybe it's relatable to him. But So if it's firmly grounded in God's word, that's really important. It's God's words being explained, and then if it's relatable to life. One other thing that I thought of is maybe if a sermon that would be particularly great or memorable would be a sermon that has like a picture that I can really relate to, or it has a story in it that like really brings this teaching to life. So I don't know, maybe now you're thinking of different sermons that you've heard. Um, there have been many, many sermons preached throughout the history of Christianity, like lots of sermons. But there is one that has risen to the top of them all. Um, it, is, it was very, very impactful to the people that first heard it, and 2,000 years later, it's still incredibly impactful to people all over the world. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, and it was preached, of course, by Jesus. So as you know, we're in this sermon series right now called Jesus in His Own Words. And if we're doing a sermon series on Jesus' words, it was inevitable, I think, that at some point we're going to find our way to the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus' words in this sermon are, are so powerful and so impactful. Um, in Matthew's Gospel, he devotes three entire chapters just to the Sermon on the Mount. And those chapters are packed with quotable quotes and memorable illustrations and important teachings. In fact, it struck me when I read it, and maybe it would strike you if you look through those three chapters, just how many stories you've heard from Jesus or parables he's told or uh, sayings that you can recall that all comes from this same sermon. Like a lot of the things we know that Jesus said comes from this one very famous sermon. Um, so certainly... We cannot look at all three chapters and every single part of it today. Today we're going to take a peek at just the first 12 verses of the Sermon on the Mount. Um, before we do that, I want to just briefly set the stage for you a little bit. So when you picture a sermon happening, what kind of a setting are you picturing? Like it's probably... I'm assuming sort of like this, where one person is explaining God's word and a group of other people are, are listening, right? 
And at Jesus' time, it was the same way. Like, this is basically how they did sermons in the Jewish synagogue. The difference was the preacher would not be standing. He would usually be sitting. So he'd read from the scroll, and then he would sit down in his chair, and then he would explain and expound on God's word while everybody listened. That was the normal synagogue format for a sermon. Um, but this particular sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, is a little bit different. It happened at a time when there were thousands and thousands of people following Jesus. This is like the height of all of his miracles. So like he goes to one side of the lake and thousands of people come around to follow him. He goes to the other side to get some rest and they all run around the other way. This is like around the time, I think, of the feeding of the 5,000 and some of these big miracles. So there's these huge crowds. And yet the way that the Sermon on the Mount is described is as a small personal discussion between Jesus and his disciples. So here's how Matthew starts it. He says, when Jesus saw these huge crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So it's a little different sermon format. It's like a small group of people are having a discussion, and they're having it kind of loudly, and a bunch of other people are eavesdropping and listening in. Does that seem like a weird format? Hopefully not because it's really no different than a podcast, right? I mean, what is a podcast? A couple people are talking. It's an intimate discussion, but there's thousands or millions of people that are tuning in. It's really no different than uh, a talk show where these two people are, you know, sitting by a fireplace with their coffee, but like thousands of people are listening to them talk. It's really no different than a panel discussion at a conference where, uh, you know, like the moderator is talking to a few people, but many, many more are filling the auditorium and listening. So this is kind of what the Sermon on the Mount is like. Jesus is talking with his disciples, uh, but thousands are listening to the conversation. Uh, and this is an important thing to realize because of the content of the Sermon on the Mount. And this is probably the final introduction piece. Uh, the Sermon on the Mount is not an evangelism presentation. So it's not like these are the ABCs of the Christian faith. We have sin, and God sent us a Savior, and he's going to die for us so that we can go to heaven. Obviously, that's in there, but the Sermon on the Mount is not this ABC instruction for the first-time listener. It's really like spiritual meat. It's really a lot of, of applications and implications for our lives. The, if I was to give the Sermon on the Mount a theme, maybe it would be, this is what the Christian life actually looks like in practice. This is what it looks like. This is what it is to be a Christian, and these are some of the challenges that come along with it. Um, so, very practical, very relevant. Of course, it's God's word because it's coming from the mouth of God's own son, Jesus. Who wouldn't want to hear this topic from Jesus? Um, so, with that introduction, let's get started. The first thing we notice as we look at the initial verses is Jesus right away starts saying surprising things, controversial things, things that when he says it, it almost doesn't sound like it can possibly be true. So, these are the first couple things he says. Blessed are the poor. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst. Essentially, he's saying, blessed are the people who don't have the things they need. And we say, really? Is blessed the word that we would use for that kind of a situation? Would we maybe think about a different word? Like maybe cursed? I mean, it's kind of like we talked about with the kids. This is just how we think about it. When life is going really, really well, 
when life is fun and easy and, and good, right, we think that God is smiling down on us. God must be good with us. And then when life is bad, when we're having a lot of problems and we're having a lot of challenges, it's easy for us to think that maybe we've ticked God off in some kind of a way. Um, but Jesus is going to challenge that mindset throughout the Sermon on the Mount and show us that the outward circumstances of our life do not necessarily reflect the spiritual realities. Um, however blessed we may look or feel on the outside may not at all be connected to where we actually really are deep down with God. Um, so, going into this deeper spiritual level, let's take a closer look at Jesus' opening words here, and let's look at what is he really saying. He doesn't just say, blessed are the poor. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn on a spiritual level. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So what is Jesus really saying? He's not just saying, blessed are the people who are missing the things they need. He's saying, blessed are the people who are lacking the spiritual things that they need. Have you ever felt that way? Like, have you ever felt like you're lacking the spiritual things that you need? You ever felt like you checked the balance on your spiritual bank account and it's just really, really low? Like, you wish you could be spiritually confident. You wish that spiritually you could have all your stuff together. But honestly, your spiritual whole life kind of feels like a mess. Your spiritual life has pressure in it because you know that there's things you're supposed to be doing and you're not doing them. Your spiritual life has guilt in it because you know there's been lots of times where you plugged your ears to what God says and you just did what you want to do. Maybe your spiritual life even has fear in it. Fear of, like, what does God really think about me? What might God do to me someday? You ever feel like this? You wish you could be spiritually confident. You wish you had all your spiritual stuff together. You look around and everybody else seems to have all of their spiritual stuff together. But you don't. Your spiritual life is kind of a mess. Deep down, you're lacking some of the spiritual things that you need. Well, if you've ever felt that way, this is what Jesus says to a Christian who feels spiritual lack. He says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who are mourning on a spiritual level, for they will be comforted. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. That's encouraging, but what does it mean? What Jesus is saying is when you don't have your spiritual stuff together, when you realize that you have spiritual needs, you are now in the perfect position to receive those very things that you need from Jesus. Because what did Jesus come to do? He came to fill up your spiritual bank account with all of his riches. He came to wipe away your tears of, of mourning and guilt with the comfort of his love. He came to wash away every last sin and mistake that you've ever had in his holy, precious blood. But more than that, he came to pour out his righteousness onto you. And you think of that. Jesus' righteousness, his perfect life with no sins in it, has been poured out onto you, and it flows down, and it fills every crack and crevice and hole and missing piece and the things that you lack. 
It's all been covered up. It's all been filled by the perfect life that Jesus lived for you and now he has put on you. And this is what your Savior is for. He gives you what you didn't have. He rewards you for what you didn't do. He even makes you into something that you were not. That's what Paul wrote to the Romans. He said, we have a God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not into things that are. When we realize we don't have all our spiritual stuff together, when we realize we have spiritual needs, then we're in a perfect position to receive those very things that we need from Jesus. That's what he's for. On the other side of the coin, if we think that we do have all our stuff together, if we think that we do have our whole spiritual life figured out, if we think that we're doing pretty well on our own, we're glad we have a Savior in case the day might come when we need him, but for the most part, we've got it figured out, we might have a bigger problem than we realize, right? So allow me to illustrate this point with a story that Jesus himself told. So here is Jesus' story. He said, once upon a time, there was a man who had all of his stuff together. He's a good guy. He was a family man, a productive member of society. He did the right things in his culture. He's a faithful attender at church. This good man knew all of the bad, wicked paths that you could go down in life, and he stayed away from them. He was a good guy. In the same town, there lived another man who could only be described as a bad guy. He didn't have his stuff together at all. He was a mess. And he had kind of lived the opposite type of life. He had done all the wrong things. So he had alienated his family, he had avoided honest hard work, and he took what he perceived to be the easy route, which was actually a life of organized crime, with all of the cruelty and debauchery and wickedness that comes along with that. He was a bad, bad person. One Sunday, the good guy and the bad guy both walked into church, and it was time to pray. So the good guy went first. He walked up to the front of church. He opened his arms. He looked boldly up to heaven and he prayed with all of his might. And he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector who just walked in behind me. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of everything that I get. Meanwhile, in the back of church, the bad guy, the tax collector, stood at a distance from everybody else. He's off in the corner on his own. He didn't even dare to look up to heaven in the direction of God, but he bowed his head, and in shame and regret, he beat his chest, and he just prayed, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, I tell you that this man, with his head bowed in the corner, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, but whoever humbles himself will be exalted. So this is a running theme throughout Jesus' teaching. Appearances can be deceiving. Regardless of the perceived goodness or badness of your life, what really matters is what's going on in your heart. And if you think that you've got all your spiritual stuff perfectly together on your own, you're further from God than you realize. When you realize that you don't have your spiritual stuff together, 
that you have spiritual needs that you cannot fill, then you're in the perfect position to receive all those very things from Jesus. You remember Jesus' quote last week, our sermon last week? He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Again, Jesus did not come to reward us for our perceived goodness. He came to wash away our badness and to clothe us in his goodness, his perfect goodness, so that we're not just wannabe children of God. We're not just try-hard, pretend children of God. We actually are children of God. You actually are a child of God. And then when you're looking at your life from the perspective of a child of God, your life starts to look a little bit different than it would look otherwise. And Jesus expands on that point with a verse that we haven't touched on yet. We'll zone in specifically on this one. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. We are like, okay, this is Jesus. I believe him. He's the son of God. But is this really true? Um, are the meek going to inherit the earth? Because it kind of doesn't seem like meekness is a really strong quality that's going to get a person anywhere. I think you could read probably a million different articles on the internet about this very topic of how to not be meek. Right? Ten ways to command respect at the workplace. Um, five ways to be respected in your own home. Seven bold tips for standing out at a party. Three assertive ways to make yourself memorable in a good way to your date. Top ten pointers on asking your boss for a raise. Right? Our world values boldness and assertiveness and people who stand up and take what's theirs and they won't settle for anything less and they refuse to take no for an answer. That's the kind of person who succeeds in our world. And in a world like that, what does it look like to be meek? How does it sound to be meek. It doesn't even sound like a word you'd want to use to describe yourself or have somebody say about you. Like if someone had never met you and someone else is describing you, is this a word that you'd want them to use? Like, uh, have you ever met Tiv? Well, I've met him. He's a good guy. He's kind of meek. Like, does that even sound like a compliment? It sounds like a diss. And yet Jesus says, blessed are the meek for they will inherit the earth. Like, how can this be? But Jesus is right, because look at him. Meek, patient, gentle, quiet, kind, even when he's being threatened, even when his life is being threatened. Remember when Jesus is getting arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers come for him, his disciples pull out swords to defend him, and Jesus says, put your sword away. Remember when Jesus is on trial before Pontius Pilate and, and Pilate says, don't you have anything to say for yourself? Don't you know that I have the power to condemn you or release you? And Jesus is just kind of like, I'm good. It's like Isaiah prophesied he was going to be like a lamb going to the slaughter. He patiently, meekly, quietly went, didn't even open his mouth. Meek rhymes with weak. And sometimes it looks a lot like weak, too. But behind the scenes, what was Jesus actually doing? 
right? His outward meekness and quietness was covering up this mighty victory that Jesus was winning. Where behind the scenes on a spiritual level, with his perfect life and death in our place, he was crushing all of our enemies. Enemies people hadn't been able to defeat for thousands of years. Enemies like Satan and sin and death and hell itself. Jesus was crushing those enemies beneath his feet and opening wide the door to heaven, to eternal life in heaven, for us and for everyone who believes in him. Jesus might have looked meek while he was here on earth the first time, but the day is going to come when he looks very different. Uh, The book of Philippians tells us about what's going to happen at the end of the world when Jesus comes a second time at the last day, and it says every eye will see him even those who pierced him. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What looked like meekness when Jesus was on this earth was actually strength, and it will be revealed to have been strength one day. Appearances can be deceiving. Right? Outward appearances don't necessarily indicate what's truly happening on a spiritual level. And so it is with you. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are you when you try to do things and love others like Jesus did and you get taken advantage of for it. Blessed are you when you try to be selfless and you really try to lay down your life for somebody and... and and you're just kind of trampled upon, and nobody even acknowledges it or thanks you or recognizes it in any way. Blessed are you when you turn the other cheek and other people see you doing it and they call you a weakling. In fact, blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me, Jesus says. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. The Christian life does not look very strong and impressive sometimes, and neither did Jesus's for that matter. But it leads to something that is absolutely wonderful. Eternal life with God in the perfect new universe that he is going to create for all of his children one day. Blessed are the meek. We've repented of our sins. We're trusting in Christ. We're trying to live like him. Blessed are the meek, for they will, at the end, inherit the earth. And one other thing from this section of the Sermon on the Mount, and then we'll just press pause because we can't possibly cover all Jesus' words in this sermon today. But one other point on meekness is simply this. Meekness is contagious. So when we're exploring religion and we come across a God who doesn't show up in power and glory, but in meekness and humility and self-sacrifice, a God who would lower himself for the sake of his people, a God who would put us ahead of himself, that makes an impact on us. That shocks us that God would do that. It grabs hold of our hearts and it won't let us go. And through that truth, the Holy Spirit builds in us the miracle of faith. In a similar way, when somebody else is exploring religion and they come across a Christian who doesn't show up in power and glory, but in meekness, and humility, and self-sacrificing love. When they come across a Christian who would truly put the needs of others ahead of their own, who would lay down their life for somebody else, that makes an impact on them. That shocks 
them. It grabs hold of their heart and won't let go. And brothers and sisters, this is how God builds his church. One person at a time, one heart at a time, as one at a time, God, cause, God causes our hearts to spiritually beat for him and to recognize that through the beauty of Christ's meekness and the power of his love, ours, yes, even ours, is the kingdom of heaven. Amen.